There are few things on earth that generate more conversation than wine. For many, the thirst for wine knowledge becomes an obsession, and it's hard to imagine that anyone has fully ingested all there is to know about the world's most revered beverage. We all know people who are passionate about sharing that knowledge and their opinions about wine. But we find an awful lot of the conversations about wine pretty hard to swallow. Welcome to Grape Encounters. Your host, David Wilson, his guests, and the rest of us on the team are here to show you a great time. How to have more fun with your wine. Where to enjoy wine the most. How to immerse yourself into a wine lifestyle that isn't simply about wine. So let's dive into this week's edition of Grape Encounters. Oh, you'll learn plenty, but hopefully it will be knowledge that you can really use. Not like that Latin class you took in high school. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. And I have been wanting to talk about this subject for a pretty long time now. I I think we've gotten into it, danced around this subject from time to time over the last 10 years, but it always comes up when I spend any time visiting with my father because whenever I bring a really great bottle of wine over that, you know, maybe costs, you know, 60 or $80, he tastes it and he goes, well, that's pretty good, but I can get something for about 3 or $4 that's just as good. <laughs> and you know what? For some people, that might very well be true, that it is just as good in their mind. A lot of the value that we ascribe to a wine is is perception, but there's a lot more that goes into it than just that. And I, I used to kind of think when I wasn't in this wine game so much that the prices that were sometimes asked for wine were not particularly reasonable. But then as I made more and more winemaker friends and I realized what goes into making a bottle of wine, I started to get a lot of clarity when it comes to why wines are priced the way they're priced. Now, I have a guest on today. It's Tim Hanai, the master of wine, one of the first two masters of wine, as a matter of fact, and author of Why You Like the Wines You Like. And Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. It was uh, last winter that we were talking. I think it was snowing at your place when I was. Yeah, we got we got snowed in here in beautiful Bend, Oregon, over and over. <laughs> yeah, and you know, by the way, I'm on my way to Oregon myself. I understand you're going to beautiful Southern Oregon to the Oregon Wine Experience. Yes, Yay. absolutely. Great. So I will say this is pre-recorded because uh, we had to because I need to get my booty up there and have some fun. And I'm not going to just enjoy the entire event. I'm going to go do some river rafting and just kind of just take in all that Southern Oregon has to offer. And it's phenomenal. The the towns are fantastic and the options, you know, the the Rogue River and all those activities and the people are wonderful. In the wine scene, it's almost like kind of going back to some of the really well-known areas. I won't mention their name like Napa or Sonoma. Back when the people were more accessible and it was a friendlier, kinder place, if you will. So I think you're going to have a blast. Yeah, that's not to say that people aren't friendly and kind in, you know, Napa and Sonoma, but I, I know what you're saying because we're talking about much smaller wineries. And when I was up there at the end of the year last year, we were touring the area by motorhome and, and literally there were multiple wineries that just let us pull right onto the property and hang out, you know, brought us coffee out in the morning 
morning. You know, <laughs> where, where, yep. are you, where are you going to find that, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Tim, if I tried to run down your entire resume, that would be the entire show. And I do want to encourage people to check out all that you have to offer because there are so many insights that you have been putting out there that are really changing the way people look at wine and wine enjoyment. And I'm so appreciative of it. We did a show some months ago, and and if people did not hear that show, they should just go to Grape Encounters and give it a listen because it is a major, major eye-opener. Because essentially, you took a position that I think was very brave of you, but also very correct, which is so much of the pairing stuff that we do is BS. In a nutshell, I've been been studying wine 53 years, so literally since 1966. Um, my background's very classical and traditional, which surprises a lot of people given the direction that I've taken over the past 30 years, especially. And then, as you mentioned, Joel Butler and I were the first two Americans to pass a Master of Wine exam in 1990. And I'm also a chef by training and an avid student of uh, gastronomy in France and all around the world. And then I've worked in about every area of the wine business you can imagine. And you've left out that you're also, along with your wife, a musician. Yes, I'm a a schmo with a guitar and she's an awesome singer and you can find Kate Hanai and the Toasted Heads on YouTube and <laughs> see what she does. Oh my gosh. You I are... married the singer. I'm a, I'm just a, a real mediocre guitar player, who, but I thought, geez, if I'm going to stay in this band, I better do something. So I married the singer. I have two friends. They are actually Cajun musicians and very well known. They were nominated for multiple Grammys, but the husband didn't play an instrument he would get up and you know like bang the tambourine once in a while and maybe sing a little backup i do play the spoons and i'm very good at playing the spoons so get this i gotta make this super fast but he went out and learned to play bass with one of the most renowned bass players ever without ever telling his wife and because they were they were having trouble getting a good bass player so he for months and months and months and months and months took lessons and then one day he just stepped up on stage Stage and plugged in his bass guitar, and boy was she shocked! <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! Love awesome. it. All right, so let's talk. Right. Let's talk about what we should be talking about. But it's always nice to take some sidebars. You know, I, I set up that scenario a few minutes ago about that conversation that always takes place with my father, and and we all have to endure those conversations where somebody says, "How could you possibly spend that amount of money?" and and how could a winemaker possibly charge the amount of money that they charge for wine? And I think there's so much that consumers probably don't know about what goes into a a wine. And so I think maybe we should just start with the most important question, which is, is pricing generally fair, do you think? Um, I'm not prone to generalizations like that. Okay. So a couple things. Let me also put in there. It's not only consumers that don't know what goes into the, the price of wines. Most wine experts don't really either. Okay. Uh, we're told things about vineyards and crop loads and levels and valuations of land and all this. And a great deal of my time is spent with my consumer and sensory perception research that I do. But the other half of what I do is teach wine business. And right. yeah. uh, so I, I have online classes. We're just getting ready to launch an eight lesson on demand wine business program that anybody around the world can 
sign up, register, and, and learn about the wine business. An essential part of this program is also we create winery financial calculators and workbooks. Oh, okay. and, and so as a learning tool, uh, someday we'll, we'll have to play online. I'll show you what these are and how they work. And so, you, again, we all sort of topically learn what we're told. And so anyways, there's a lot deeper conversations to be had in understanding and in separating the truth from the BS. And there certainly is a great deal of BS. Yes. And, and I would even go so far as to say that some of that BS might be appropriate in the sense that you want to protect the prestige of certain brands. They won't always have uh, perfect years, but once you start taking the price down on a wine, you're never going to get it back up again, or it's going to be quite a reach to do that, don't you think? So, uh, well, yeah. And so said another way, a lot of this is just marketing. Yeah. And so, so people will say things, and there are examples of this that are just sort of minor and poetic and and a good story, but then there's sort of the egregious part. And then there's something else that's going on that that I'd really like to throw in here. And and that is a lot of wineries are starting coming out now attacking the industry as a whole. There are these online companies in particular that, oh, we're sugar-free and most wines have more sugar than a bag of sugar and and all this kind of stuff. it's, It's confusing not only to consumers, but for the people selling wine and buying wine and and in restaurants and in hotels. All right. Hold that thought for a second. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to pose a question to the entire audience right now. Everybody just take a piece of paper, write down on a piece of paper what you think a cork costs. How much does a cork cost? You know, the corks that most people throw away, but some people put them in those things called cork cages and save them. I happen to save them. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But uh, uh, just uh, chew on that for a minute and don't go on Google and find out because you might be shocked to learn the answer. We're talking to Tim Hanai, and he's the author of Why You Like the Wines You Like. He has some just astonishing programs that he has developed and also has a course in wine business that you'll be able to take fairly soon, right, Tim? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've got another live class coming up in a couple of months, but we're looking to launch our learning management system with the new on-demand wine business program next month. Okay. So we'll be back with one of the most acclaimed wine experts in the known universe. Just just, Just the known universe, but we'll be back with more Grape Encounters which is brought to you by our friends at Total Wine and More. And we'll be back in just a second with Tim. Stay with us. David will be back with more Grape Encounters in a couple of minutes, which means there simply isn't enough time for him to enjoy more than a sip or two of one of his faves. Oh, the sacrifices we make in the broadcasting business. Wine Experience's Founders Barrel Auction on Friday, August 23rd is an afternoon of elegance. Sample wine futures from Authentique Wine Cellars, Hewitt Cellars, Laurel Ridge Winery, Left Coast Estate, Russell Prayer Rock Vineyards, Stone Griffin Vineyard, Vulcan Cellars, plus many more. The action takes off as you bid on the opportunity to win a case or the whole barrel of Oregon's finest wines. Go to TheOregonWineExperience.com to purchase tickets. The Oregon Wine Experience, it's everything Oregon. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, 
Her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, Walnuts and Wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. Nestled right in between two world-class wine countries, Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the perfect gateway to nearly endless wine country adventures. Cozy and oh-so-friendly, make historic Atascadero home base for adventures to hundreds of surrounding wineries, the nearby Pacific, and magical Hearst Castle, plus an amazing array of attractions from ziplining to delectable dining. Discover all that affordable Atascadero has to offer at visitatascadero.com. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio, broadcasting from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine & More, America's largest independent retailer of fine wine. They carry more than 8,000 different wines from every wine-producing region in the world and offer an equally monumental selection of beer and spirits. Here's David. All right, so when we checked out for commercials a few minutes ago, I posed the question, you know, just how much does a quart cost? You know, how much does that add to the price of a bottle of wine? And, Tim, you and I have not uh, discussed this. Tim Hanai, master of wine, master of all things. Jack of all trades well, was, and master of wine. I was going to say master of all things renaissance. You are the consummate renaissance man with a lot of technology thrown in just for fun. But isn't it amazing how we think that something like a cork maybe would be – because I've posed this question to people endlessly. How much is a cork? I don't know, five cents? Is it 10 cents? What's the most expensive cork you've ever heard of, Tim? I don't even know. I don't know that it's 50 cents, but what have you heard? I asked you a question you don't know the answer to. Oh, and I know the answer to court questions. And, oh, but not the cost part. Well, again, there it's it covers a wide, wide range of... So you can spend, easily spend $3 a cork. I had a guest on, I guess, about a year ago, and they were explaining to me that they take every single cork that they make and they put it in a, a little container and it's moistened and then, you know, like maybe it's a, a half a day later or something, they have professional sniffers go sniff each cork and certify that the cork is pristine. I don't know how this all works, so don't ask me. And, but- and, and to be honest, I think this is really esoteric. If you're paying more than 25 cents for a cork, Honestly, you're paying too much. Okay, right. <laughs> and, and this is where this is where it gets really difficult, not only for for the consumer but for professionals. You know, here you've got somebody that goes through this whatever they're doing and looking for reactions. Today, cork industry has had to totally reinvent themselves, right? Because they had very inconsistent products, they had really bad practices. I mean, really bad. 
the whole grading system was there's a bale of corks sitting on the ground and the low quality ones are in the bottom and have a bunch of worms and the high quality are, are in the top where they haven't been contaminated. Wow. And that used to be the actual grading system. And then they used to use different things like hydrogen peroxide to sterilize them and the tiniest drop of that residual in a little cranny would turn would oxidize an entire bottle of wine in no time. Wow. And so forth. So, you know, what I'd like to focus in on, number one, what's the value of wine to the individual? Okay. And so your dad's right. He should never spend more than he spends if he's getting the pleasure he wants. And it very, very well may be that he actually prefers a wine in a box or a very inexpensive table wine to an 80 or $100 bottle of wine. Because as you go up in price today, and I'm going to juxtapose this against history, because how the market is today and how wine pricing is today has nothing to do with history or tradition of wines. And so the the model of what makes a great wine has become more and more intensity and complexity and strong flavors and higher alcohols. And as a result, you're actually creating a product that has less and less appeal to many people. Why is that? Why is that? Well, if you're highly, highly sensitive to high alcohol and bitterness, okay. the, the whole rating system's back asswards. So my mother-in-law and my research colleague are both in the highest sensory sensitivity world in humanity, and they're never going to like dry wine. The higher the alcohol, they've got a genetic variable that what you would probably find a normal alcohol level and, and very pleasant, they find burns horribly and is, is disgusting. Would you be adverse to somebody putting, let's say, a half teaspoon of water into that wine just to bring the alcohol down a little bit? Because I was amazed at how effective that is. And I and I first picked that up in an article from many years ago from the New York Times. And I said, that can't be. That's the, You're diluting the wine. But in reality, it actually makes it taste better. So I don't know if you would agree with me there. So yeah, let me just cut to the chase. What's the national beverage of Spain? The national beverage of Spain. What's the beverage Spain is known for? I'm going to say sangria. Correct. I got it. Okay. So so if the if the Spanish for centuries found it okay to to actually cut their wine fifty fifty with fruit juice, and you've heard of a kir, what is a kir? You know, I don't know what a cure is, actually. A cure is a drink invented after World War II when the wine industry in France was in shambles. And the mayor of Dijon, his name was Felix Kier, K-I-R, started popularizing putting fruit liqueur or fruit syrup into your wine to sweeten it and make it a little bit more pleasant. And it saved the French wine industry. And the Italians had Lambruscos and they had sweet wines. And sitting at a table in France, Italy, Spain, or or Germany, it was absolutely okay to taste the wine, drop a cube of sugar in it, and add as much water as you thought was necessary to make it taste okay. Well, I, I, one of my favorite stories, and I don't remember the very specific details, but it takes us back to Spain and a festival back in the 70s, I believe, and they brought in all of this wine, and if they had sodas as well. When they went to taste the wine before the festival began, it was so horrible. It was completely undrinkable. And some forward-thinking person that was working at the festival said, well, I can fix it. Just mix the cola with the wine. 
So it's called a calamocho. Calamocho, right. And again, here's what's what happened. Wine people are passionate about the product. And we take on any cockamamie story that anybody tells. So calamocho is 50-50 red wine and cola. It is the most popular way to drink wine in the Basque country of both Spain and France. Isn't that something? And the experts are oblivious to this. So here's a question I've got for you. But you're going to have to ask the question, and then we'll answer it after this break. Okay, so go ahead. Okay, so in the Napa Valley last year for Cabernet Sauvignon, what was the low price per ton and the high price per ton paid for grapes? Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to take a wild stab at this, okay? Yeah. I'm going to say... For a ton of grapes. I'm going to say high price per ton for Cabernet, Mm -hmm. 20 grand. Great. And I'm going to say low price per ton for Cabernet, less than $1,000. Okay, so we will learn the answer when we get back. Oh, don't do that to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> my guest, Master of Wine, Tim Hanai. Oh, my gosh. you got to go to timhanai.com, and you'll be able to discover so much of the stuff that he's worked on his whole career. you got to check out my vino type. This is such interesting stuff. Oh, and one last thing before we break. i got to be sure to tell you about a brand-new podcast that we just launched. It's called The Wine is Talk. Talking. You're going to find some very gritty and off the mainstream topics that you're not going to hear anybody talk about anyplace else. The Wine is Talking definitely takes you there. New episodes coming every week. You can subscribe to it on iTunes or you can just listen to it at thewineistalking.com. And The Wine is Talking is also brought to you by Total Wine and More. Back with more Grape Encounters right after this. We've got to take a breather for a minute or two. Don't go away. Remember, if we don't let the wine breathe, it's impossible for the show to be done in good taste. Summertime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. If you're topping off your burger with grilled onions and blue cheese, pair your work of art with a spicy Malbec. Nothing beats a buttery Chardonnay with grilled corn on the cob. I'm ready to find you the perfect bottle of white for your next get-together. Pack up the cooler for this weekend. We've got canned wine and beer ready to throw on ice. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this summer at Total Wine & More. Cheers! I want to take this opportunity to tell you about the wines of Peak Ranch. I recently discovered these truly amazing wines that are raking in top honors from the wine press. What I didn't initially realize is that I had a very strong connection to these perfectly crafted Pinots, Syrahs, Chardonnays, and more. Remarkably, these wines are produced by my very best friend from the first grade, John Wagner. Now, I have to say that John has always one-upped me in almost everything he does, and these extraordinary wines are no exception. Made from grapes grown on one of California's most historic Central Coast properties, there is no other word to describe them than perfect. Peak Ranch is doing everything right. Amazing wines that will absolutely astound you. Buy them online at peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. 
Savor Oregon's finest wines at the Oregon Wine Experience's Grand Tasting on Sunday, August 25th. Work your way through the tasting tables and enjoy an array of delicious culinary bites. Don't miss this special opportunity to sample wines from all corners of Oregon in one unique location. The wine pours start at 2 p.m. Plan your experience today. Go to theoregonwineexperience.com to purchase tickets. The Oregon Wine Experience, it's everything Oregon. Welcome back to Grape Encounters, where we believe there's no way to fake a great wine, and where we never fake our disdain for the really bad ones. So, why does a bottle of wine cost what it costs? And more importantly, do those $50, $60, $100, $200, for, for Pete's sake, $500 bottles of wine, are they really worth the price that people are willing to pay for them? I think I actually gave the answer to that away in the, in the way I phrased the question. But before we get into more reasons why wine costs what it costs, we're going to answer Tim's question. Tim Hanai, Master of Wine and a master of almost all things, Tim, the question was, how much is the lowest price that someone would have paid? Was it last year? Yeah, low and high price per ton from the California Great Crush Report for Cabernet Sauvignon Napa Valley last year. Okay, so I said high would be somewhere around 20 grand a ton and low would be under a thousand bucks. How close am I? Kind of in the middle. I'm in the uh, middle. Okay. The low was 150 bucks a ton. No kidding. And, and the high was 50,000. 50,000. 50,000. Holy smoke. And Holy uh, any, any idea whose grapes those were? Yes, I do. But you can't tell, can you? No, I can't. <laughs> First of all, what people, both professional and consumers alike, need to know. There's a supply chain. The supply chain starts with real estate and permits and improvements of land and purchasing the land and development and hardware and vine stock and laying out. And then you've got a proposition that you're going to have to wait four to five years before you've got even the beginning of a usable crop, maybe much longer for certain styles of wine. From that, you've got the harvest and pre-fermentation and bringing things into the winery where you might be even taking the grapes that you paid $10,000 or even $20,000 for and then very severely selecting only certain grapes so that if you had a $10,000 you know, basis for per ton and then remove 10 or 20% or in really lousy vintages, 50% of the grapes, right? Right, yeah. And then from there, you go in to the fermentation and the handling and the treatment and so forth. And most people don't understand, even if they're really expert, technically it's way more difficult to make a really great consistent white Zinfandel than it is to make a $200 bottle of red wine. From a technical standpoint, it's actually more challenging. Yeah. And I I think about uh, companies like Kendall Jackson as an example. If I'm traveling and I'm in some place that has very, very little wine, uh, but they've got Kendall Jackson 
Hamilton's Chardonnay there. It, it, it always amazes me. That I don't know how many millions of bottles of that that they make, but it's consistent. It's delicious. It's a good value. And it would seem to me a lot harder to try to make, you know, a million bottles of something. I don't know how many they actually make of that, but, it, but to make a million bottles of something and keep it consistent year after year than to make a thousand cases of something. Here's the other thing that really ticks me off about the wine industry is behind the gallows, behind these doors of, of these huge facilities, two buck chuck and whatever, are people. People who are smart and passionate, who love what they do. And we almost totally remove wine from context. We're completely disconnected from wine history, like we were talking about with this idea that Americans drink sweet wine because they grew up on Coca-Cola. Uh, did you know that a hundred years ago, the sweetness level in French champagne was typically 30% greater than it was and they, in Coca-Cola. And they were drinking Madeiras and ports and, you know. Aging of fine red wine was not anything close to what we do for aging of wine today. It was actually to let really bad, expensive wine turn into Madeira. Yes. Madeira was a replication of the end game of aging great Bordeaux that sometimes in an entire decade didn't make what we would even consider acceptable wine by today's standards. Okay, so here's something that's really, really super up your alley, Tim. Let's just talk about the physical structure of our bodies, and particularly our mouths, our tongues, our palates. I mean, there can be no question that you perhaps can taste things that I would never be able to taste, and that the nuances, just because of things like the number of taste buds on a tongue, or whether somebody smokes or whatever it is, is going to change their ability to really zoom in on those very, you know, fine particular and nuances, I always tell people you're the luckiest person in the world if you can't taste the barnyard and the pencil lead. Three things affect perception. The physiology, which is genetics. And some people have 500 taste buds. Other people have more than 11,000. And there is no better. There is no worse. There's whatever you've got. It's like trying to say, oh, you know, it'd be much better if, if you had a size 11 shoe than a nine and a half. Well, that's ridiculous. You've got an 11. That's what you need to focus on. That's what your foot's going to fit in, right? And so we've got this cockamamie idea that experts somehow have superpowers or this. The people with the most taste buds and the highest perceptive sensitivity are sweet wine drinkers. And the ones that are at the highest level can't even drink a wine that's over 11 or 12% alcohol. Wow. Right. And, and, and the wine industry, we're just out of our heads. So your dad's right that for him, he might get a additional pleasure from that extra bit of residual sugar and from the, the softer, milder flavors, the lower alcohol of the inexpensive wines he loves. And then you're serving this $80 bottle and for him, it's abrasive. It's really unpleasant taste. He lives in a different sensory world. We all do. So number one is the genetic factors. Number two, there are a number of, of neurological differences about where and how sensations are 
are being directed. And then the final frontier is the psychological end of it. Do you have positive or negative associations? Is it aspirational? So we've got these things like, oh, as your palate matures, you learn to like dry wines. Well, that's just a cliche. There's no truth to it. Your palate doesn't quote unquote mature. The changes in time are usually psychological. And as we ascribe value and as we invest time and as we learn new experiences, these psychological changes are driving us. And it doesn't matter if it's audio equipment or handbags or wine or dining experiences. It's a really complex system by which we find and gravitate towards the things, one, that were genetically fit us best. So you go into the shoe store, you go to roughly the size you're looking for, and you may have a little wiggle room and up or a little wiggle room down, but then you're also looking at the price, the price value. You might have a preference for leather or Velcro, you know, closures or whatever it is. So in that case, the genetics are kind of the boundaries of where you're going to go in the store. And then you're going to look for the features and you're going to look for what's in fashion or not. Some people just love to go against fashion. So they want to wear their white tennis shoes with the black tux to make that statement. I do want to add this. There are times when we human beings want to experience something and we don't necessarily have high expectations, but we want to do it to be able to say we did it. Like uh, the the first time I got to taste a a 200-year-old Madeira. And, you know, did I love it? I actually did love it, but it wasn't about love as much as it was having a history lesson that I could swallow. It was so meaningful to me. And if you want to, you know, experience these things and you have the wherewithal, you have the finances to do it, then for Pete's sake, do do it. Go for it. And if you don't, don't. And if you love wine in a box because, one, you love the flavor, and number two, because you can put a pizza on it in your fridge, and so logistically it makes sense, have a box of whatever wine you love. Uh, Tim, we're going to take a break real quick. We're going to come back for one last segment, and I want to toss some things at you that I know and believe affect the price of the wine, but then I I want you to just give me quick reactions on those and put it into perspective. Let me throw in something that'll be unexpected for you. Let's take Total Wines and Morris an example. Let's take any store. Find a store that has people that can relate to you, that can talk to you on your terms, that doesn't come off sneering or snide because of your wine preferences. And that goes for the really expensive and the really rare or the really inexpensive. And so where the wine industry sucks is connecting with individuals and understanding people's preferences on a personal level. And that's both taste and price and exploration or not, whatever it is. And Total Wine is a great example of that because they have a very enthusiastic team in every store. They have an extremely broad selection of wines, beers, and spirits. But more than that, they're not trying to cram down your throat something that's super expensive. And I've always been impressed with the fact that they will put a $100 bottle of wine next to a $20 bottle of wine and treat them as equals in the sense that they're in their own way quality products. It's called customer service. And there are companies that do that and there are companies that are not so much. All right, we're going to be back in just a second with more Grape Encounters Radio. My special guest, Tim Hanai, and uh, coming to us from Bend, Oregon. And we'll be back right after this. 
Sometimes drinking wine makes you just want to curl up in a comfy chair and dream about puppy dogs, faraway places, and other happy thoughts. Or you can just enjoy that cuvee in your glass and lose yourself in the conversation on Grape Encounters Radio. Summertime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Nothing beats beers and burgers. And with so many to choose from, we've got the perfect cold one waiting for you. Serving up salads at your cookout this weekend? Add a dry rosé to the table for a perfect pairing. When I'm the barbecue grill master, I've got to have a cold lager in my hand. Hey, grab me another. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this summer at Total Wine & More. Cheers. Nestled right in between two world-class wine countries, Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the perfect gateway to nearly endless wine country adventures. Cozy and oh-so-friendly, make historic Atascadero home base for adventures to hundreds of surrounding wineries, the nearby Pacific, and magical Hearst Castle, plus an amazing array of attractions from ziplining to delectable dining. Discover all that affordable Atascadero has to offer at visitatascadero.com. I want to take this opportunity to tell you about the wines of Peak Ranch. I recently discovered these truly amazing wines that are raking in top honors from the wine press. What I didn't initially realize is that I had a very strong connection to these perfectly crafted Pinots, Syrahs, Chardonnays, and more. Remarkably, these wines are produced by my very best friend from the first grade, John Wagner. Now, I have to say that John has always one-upped me in almost everything he does, and these extraordinary wines are no exception. Made from grapes grown on one of California's most historic Central Coast properties, there is no other word to describe them than perfect. Peak Ranch is doing everything right. Amazing wines that will absolutely astound you. Buy them online at peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. People often ask, why hasn't someone tarred and feathered Grape Encounters host David Wilson for breaking so many of the old rules? Simple. No one likes the old rules. All right, we're in the final stretch of Grape Encounters Radio, and it's always a good day when you can have somebody like Tim Hanai in. One of the first two masters of wine, an author of Why You Like the Wines You Like, and we're talking about why a wine costs what it costs. We don't have a lot of time left, Tim, but there was something you wanted to throw out there, and I want to make sure you, you get a chance to do that. So for all my expertise, for all the intimidation and the downright fear and overwhelm that consumers have, you know what you like better than anybody else and find the wine cellar that's going to be focused on you who's not kowtowing to the greater glory of wine and in awe of it but hey you know how can I help you find what you're going to love if you go into a shoe store you don't want some shoe expert that doesn't know people have different size feet right. you know and they're like oh this one this great gold medal and it's really expensive here put it on ow that hurts it doesn't fit me oh well obviously your foot's not mature we have new <laughs> education courses. I know it's a good fit because it fits me. We are all different and the wine industry doesn't know 
this nearly enough. We really need to pay more attention to consumer needs. I've had wines that are $10,000 that were frankly really disappointing. And I've enjoyed the bejesus out of really cheap wines on thousands of occasions. So, you know, anywhere in between is fair game. What do you like? I'm going to throw some things out there and I want you to react in terms of, is it important to the price of a bottle or is it not? Okay. Keep Got it. And I, and I know that's a broad generalization. I don't like throw it out. Okay. Let's All right. Okay. Let's talk about wood for starters. Okay. Oak barrels, but also oak barrels compared to chopped up chunks of oak that are put in there to simulate that same uh, flavor profile. How much okay. does, how much does that, any of that matter? So in the cellaring of wine, there's a, a lot of, and there always have been many, many options available. The use of oak was basically because of how wines needed to be transported. And the, the French planted unbelievable amount of government-controlled forests to build an, a naval armada back in the 15th, 16th centuries. And then as other materials came available to the shipbuilding, mostly steel, these have been all turned over to supplying the world with French oak wine barrels. And there's other other producers around the world. The barrels are expensive. And and time in barrel, I'm going to go to where most experts don't even know. The evaporative rate of storing a wine in barrel can be up to 10% of the volume. So actual, the evaporation rate, typically if you're managing your cellar and whatever with humidity and temperature is about 3%. But it's not only the cost of the barrel, it's the amount of room barrels take up and the logistics and how they have to be moved, how you do your testing versus <clears throat> a large tank of, of yeah, product. Good, good, good point. So yes, a really high quality barrel program is incredibly expensive to the point that it's also driving a second set of options called oak adjuncts. These are anything from uh, sawdust to tea bags to chips to blocks to resurfacing the, the inside of the barrels to you name it. Even liquid treatments that are legal to be added that come in all sorts of forms and functions. And there are so many ways that that actually can positively be applied. It used to be pretty apparent what was aged in classically or traditionally in oak barrels versus these adjuncts. Today, it's really hard to tell the difference. And so if you get a wine under $10 that has a really wonderful oak profile and so on, it's very likely they're using oak adjuncts. And I I have zero issue with that. So would it be safe to say that Tim Hanai believes that the end justifies the means most of the time? You betcha. Oh, Unless there's anything okay. that's that's danger or misrepresented yeah. or unwholesome or whatever, if it provides a consumer with what they like and they latch onto it, then go for it. Okay, let's let's talk about one that I don't think people talk about very much in, in consumer circles, and that is the bottle itself. I love when I pick up a really hefty, thick, heavy bottle. And to my way of thinking, it generally, but not always, tends to indicate a wine that may be of a higher quality. True or false? Again, it's all up to the individual. It's actually a a common practice now. And there's also a lot of pushback because ecologically there's a cost to that. 
the additional weight, uh, the cost of the glass, but also the, the carbon footprint that it's leaving. Because that weight in a case of wine, on a pallet, in a shipment, on a container, that it could be Opus One or it could be a Moscato, uh, it takes more gas, it, it's got to be disposed of, it's got to be recycled and so on. So what they're, what they're doing is they're, they're playing on a known psychological aspect of perception. If it feels heavy, we think it's heavy, we equate heaviness with a heavy wine. Okay. But here's where it totally breaks down. Did you know that a good semi-sweet Riesling or a Moscato or a white Zinfandel is actually a heavier wine, a great Bordeaux or a great Burgundy or Opus or whatever? All right. Heavier in what sense? Are we talking uh, viscosity mean, is, or, is, or just what the, the word weight? heavy mean? Well, okay. Just the weight of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I had no idea. Yeah. Specific gravity. No Alcohol weighs, weighs less than sugar. No idea. So again, it's metaphorical in what this is, is you've played into the hands of psychological marketing so that you pick a bottle up and you go, oh, wow, this this one's more solid. And that's a very natural phenomenon with humans. And there are companies that, that play to that. Okay. So we just like literally have less than a minute left. Tim, I appreciate it so, so very much. And you stayed on with me a lot longer than I promised you'd have to, but <laughs> I owe you a bottle of white Zinfandel and I'll send, All right, it, buddy. I'll send it straight away. Thanks very much. It's Tim Hanai. You can find him at timhanai.com. And, and and that's H-A-N-N-I. And, and by all means, if you want a really fascinating read, go get his book, Why You Like the Wines You Like. It will change your perception of wine and your wine life forevermore. And he's spot on. Believe me, he is. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. That's going to do it for my visit with Tim today. And we'll be back here next week. And I'll tell you all about my time in Oregon. All right, buddy. Well, this episode of Grape Encounters is in the bag. It's hard to imagine you haven't missed some episodes, so why not hunt them down at GrapeEncounters.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast sites. Grape Encounters Studios are located in beautiful Atascadero, California. That's Central Coast wine country, baby. Come visit us. But be warned, you won't want to leave. That's okay. We have a spare bedroom. But it's 55 degrees and full of old bottles.